Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I was about to start into the whole service opening. I had to remember. No, this is Sunday school. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I'm looking forward to going through the end of Esther here with you. It's been a very fruitful study, I believe. And um, Before we get started, uh, why don't we go to our great God in prayer and just ask that he gives us uh, sustenance as we look to feast on his word. <clears throat> Almighty God, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal your truth to us. Open our ears and soften our hearts. Let your word be proclaimed, heard, and believed. Let no error be taught, and correct me if needed, Lord. Let the hearing of your word both edify your people, be seeds of repentance and faith to the lost who may be listening. We thank you, great God, for your divine providence to gather this Lord's day. May your name be exalted, and may you be glorified. In Christ we pray. Amen. So I don't want to get too sidetracked from my thoughts, so I'm going to be reading a lot from my notes. <laughs> so first I want to quickly recount what we studied so far in uh, Esther chapters 1 through 8. We saw that despite no mention of God's name, God's providence is throughout the whole book. Uh, you might say it's uh, too coincidental to be coincidental. Um, we also saw much typology and foreshadowing to Christ, to God's plan for his people and his kingdom, and allusions to other events and people in scripture. We've seen a lot of irony uh, in the book, especially reversals of fortune. We've seen repetition, uh, particularly in twos and threes, for emphasis and importance. And quite frankly, we've read and studied some good literature, full of suspense and climax and plot twists. So don't expect anything different from Esther uh, chapters 9 and 10. Uh, let's walk through it together, and uh, we'll look at many scripture references in our study. Um, you can simply take note of those references. A lot of the quotes will be short, so you don't have to keep flipping around through your Bible. Um, however, in addition to uh, Esther 9, uh, you may wish to also bookmark First uh, Samuel 15. I'll, I'll read a longer passage out of that one. And you can also read along with me if you wish uh, in the confession. Uh, I'll be looking at chapters uh, 17 and 22. And if you don't have one, you can find, uh, find it in the back of the hymnal here. So, literally, uh, Esther chapters 9 and 10, they're usually broken down into three parts. Uh, it's usually titled something like, uh, The Jews Destroy Their Enemies, The Feast of Purim, and The Advancement of Mordecai, sometimes simply labeled the epilogue. But instead, I'd like to look uh, at this famous, um, quote-unquote, God isn't mentioned anywhere, book of the Bible, from the perspective of what the book teaches us about who God is. Another irony. Uh, and so instead, I'm going to break it down into these three categories, God of victory, God of second chances, and worthy God. 
Again, that's God of victory, God of second chances, and worthy God. Or if you prefer, you could also think of these sessions as the obvious, the subtle, and the glorious. So let's start off uh, by reading the text. Uh, you can follow along uh, through me, with me, and then we'll go back through it uh, together. So we're going to read Ep- Esther chapters 9 and 10. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dauphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adelia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Viazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to today's edict. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day, and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages, who lived in the rural towns, hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar 
and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had been turned for, <coughs> turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should be returned on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep those two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, and these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting, their fasts and their lamenting, excuse me. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Amen. So now I... First, want to look at our first category. I'm calling it the the obvious category, and that is King of Victory. So well, let's walk through this together. Um, walking through the text, we read in Esther nine one: On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Here we see that God gave his people the victory the very day when their enemies had planned their destruction, a major and obvious irony. Uh, for reference, we read in 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-one, You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. Next in 9, 2, we read, No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. So please don't miss this. God even conquered the hearts of the enemy. It reminds me of Exodus 9.12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, 
And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So our sovereign God is in control of even his enemies' hearts. Um, we could probably get off on a whole tangent on the doctrines of grace here, but I'll, I'll stick to the script. <laughs> yeah. In the 9.3, we read, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So God conquered even the enemy's rulers' hearts. 9.4, His fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So God raised up his general for this battle. It was God who advanced Mordecai and not Mordecai himself. There's an allusion here to 2 Samuel 3.1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 9.5, we read, Killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So it was a complete or no-contest victory, if you will. The outcome was never in question, just like the outcome of our mighty warrior Christ. We read in Revelation 12:12, 12, 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 9.6 In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including what we read in 9.10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. God destroyed the entire family of his enemy through his people and seemingly also destroyed his bloodline, and yet God still isn't finished. 9.12 Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. It's funny, to me it almost seems as God is rhetorically asking through the king, how shall I make this total victory even more complete? Uh, this also indicates God's pleasure with his people's actions, which we will consider a little bit more later on. 9.13 And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. God now uses even his dead enemies as a warning and a sign of dishonor to all those who would stand against him and his people, and that would foolishly exalt themselves. So it looks like an, an ultimate and extreme example of God humbling those who exalt themselves. Um, from Luke fourteen eleven, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it also has an allusion to Second Samuel twelve five and six. They said to the king, <clears throat> the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. And finally we read in Psalms 71, 13, and 14, May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. Uh, interestingly, kind of a note here, the book of Esther would later be read aloud in the synagogue uh, during Purim. And the congregation would make noises. They would hiss or stomp their feet. Uh, even some would use noisemakers. Every time Haman's name was read aloud, they were mocking this foolish man who thought he could sex successfully campaign against the Lord, the very Lord who laughs at every wicked person who rises, raises a fist against him. We see from Psalm uh, 37, 12, and 13, 
The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. As believers in Christ, we can laugh at Satan's attempts to destroy us, and we know the Lord's victory is certain. From Isaiah 54:17, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And also from Colossians 2.15, He disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Lastly, in 9.16 we read, And got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000, yes, 75,000 of those who hated them. Once again, it was a total and complete victory, and this victory anticipates the final battle of Christ over evil. From Revelation uh, 20.10 this time, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And as his people, we are able to share in the Lord's eternal victory over all who hate him. From 2 Timothy 2:11 and 12, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But we should always be mindful that we are sinners and our deserved fate is the same as his conquered foes that God rightly and justly destroys. Yet it's only through Christ who took upon himself the loss that we deserve that we are delivered. And we should also remember that there is spiritual warfare every time the gospel is preached, and that people from birth reject Jesus unless the Holy Spirit conquers their hearts. And we must also remember that our chief weapons in this battle are the word of God and prayer. We fight for God's kingdom in this battle by loving our enemies, which means praying for them and proclaiming the word of God to them. Let us move on now to our our second category, calling it the subtle category. And that is God of second chances. Firstly, in 9.1 we read, When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. King Ahasuerus' original edict could not be revoked, But here, a second chance, another edict was issued that allowed the Jews to reverse their apparent fate. Recall in 8.11 we read, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them. Also recall that we learned earlier that Haman was an Agagite. And centuries earlier, Saul disobeyed God by not killing King Agag of the Amalekites, as we read in 1 Samuel 15, which we will review again here in a minute. Now, centuries later, Mordecai, from the very same tribe of Benjamin, as was Saul, is given the chance to destroy the Agagite. But let's uh, examine more closely the differences between Saul's earlier failure and the second chance of Mordecai's success. We read in 9.10, again in 9.15, and yet again in 9.16, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This clear, thrice-repeated repetition indicates the importance of God's people's obedience and motives, which led to God's pleasure to give them complete victory. Recall earlier I made uh, mention of God's pleasure and God's people's actions. Saul, on the other hand, not only disobeyed in failing to kill Agag, 
He also plundered and profited off the destruction. In 1 Samuel 15, 19-23, you're welcome to read along on this one. It's a little bit longer. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I had devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In 9.13, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. So God even gives a second chance to finish the current task of destroying the enemy. 9.16, killed 75,000 of those who hated them. So despite the massive bloodshed, 75,000 no doubt, the Jews not laying hands on the plunder demonstrates that they fought a holy war. For they knew the disobedience of Saul and of Israel under Joshua. Read in Joshua 7, 11, and 12. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed from my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Also in Esther 9 overall, we see there is always a focus on the destruction of the enemy, not simply on quote-unquote winning. And there is no indication anywhere in the book that any of the violence was counted to them as sin. In 921, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So God even grants them a second chance at celebration and thanksgiving every year. As Christians, this is a great reminder to us that we are given continual second chances to celebrate and give thanks to our God each and every Lord's Day. It is also a reminder of our continuing second chances for repentance and obedience. As acknowledged in our confession, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, if you have it, you can turn to chapter 17. We're going to look at paragraph 3. And though they they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So just repeat that last part. Yet shall they renew their repentance 
and be preserved through Christ Jesus to the end. This leads us to our third and, and final category, uh, what I'm calling the glorious category, and that is worthy God. In 9.16 we read, And got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. The sheer magnitude of this victory explains the desire of the Jews to establish an annual celebration to the true worthy victor, God. In 9.19, Hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The gift of food enables even the poorest among them to celebrate. It is God's providential care for the oppressed. We read in Nehemiah 8.12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And in 9.20-32, we read the likely purpose for the recording of these events to establish the Feast of Purim, which we read is from the Persian poor, meaning lot, referencing the lots Haman cast to determine when to kill the Jewish people, uh, just another in the long list of God's ironies. In 9.24, we read, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews. The reason for the new holiday is also related to the specific defeat of Haman, who was the archetypal adversary of the Jews, both past and present. 9.27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. So, and all who joined them. This has an allusion to Zechariah 2.11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 9.31, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. This new feast was established within the setting of an already established fasting and lamenting, making it an official religious celebration despite its non-Mosaic origin. This further signifies the magnitude of the gratefulness to God for his deliverance. In 9.16-32, we see that the Lord brought good out of Haman's desire to do evil to God's people, and that our great God promises to bring good out of every evil that is instigated against his people. From Genesis 50.20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And also in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for, the, <clears throat> for those who are being called according to his purpose. When God rescues and delivers his children, our only appropriate response is celebration and thanksgiving, for he is worthy. From Deuteronomy 16.11, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Also, the establishment of Purim is an example that the church may at times call for special occasions of thanksgiving outside of weekly Lord's Day worship, but it should most certainly be part of weekly worship. Uh, from Psalm 95, 1-3, 
O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. He is indeed worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. From Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to, re- to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is also acknowledged in our confession. Uh, you can turn to chapter 22, read paragraph 3. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Christians should be the most grateful people of all, having the undeserved gift of God's grace in Christ. Thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done reminds us not only of whom he is and what he has done, but also whom we are and what we have done. It reminds us of our sinfulness, both in who we are, our sinfulness by nature, and what we have done, our sinfulness by deed. And it reminds us of our desperate need for a Savior. Finally, we read in 10.3, Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So just like Joseph, this is clearly God's hand. Uh, in Genesis 41.40 we read, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So the book of Esther truly is a testament to the power and the mercy and the greatness of our God. Again, ironically, without being named, God is the true central character throughout the entire book of Esther. Just as Christ is all over the Old Testament, yet not mentioned by name, our great God is all throughout Esther, despite not being mentioned by name. And Esther has taught us much about God's providence. Uh, To quote a study from Ligonier in the book of Esther, For the most part, God's hand of providence remains hidden, and we do not know how things will turn out for us before they actually occur. At times we must trust the Lord and do the right thing, even if we know it might cost us our livelihood or even our lives. On these occasions, we must remember that God is ever working for our good and His glory, and we must trust Him to vindicate us for doing what is right, even if this vindication may not come until after our death. So it's been a delight to walk through this book together. Hope we have all learned much from this study. Um, So now our discussion. Are there any thoughts, questions, comments on Esther 9 and 10, or or the whole book of Esther for that matter? Um, Has it been edifying to you? It certainly has been to me. Mm-hmm. And one who spoke for the king, the elephant. 
interesting. Definitely a type there. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts? Oh, yeah. It's a different kind of responsive reading, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that definitely just kind of points down to how God put Haman and his sons to shame. Yeah, just bringing that out and Every time they read it, the shame of God's enemies. Last verse added by the Yeah, that's interesting. And, and another another pointing to, to Christ, right? A mighty warrior who we will find peace through Christ. So. All right, well, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's close in prayer real quick. And then we'll take a short break before our, our service. Our mighty, merciful, and glorious God, we indeed thank you for your word. We thank you for your hand of providence upon your people and your whole creation. We pray that you would give us the strength to trust you as our vindicator in times of persecution and give us the will to always do what is right in your eyes. We thank you that you've promised us to work all things for our good and for your glory. And we pray that our study has not only edified your people, but that you have been honored and glorified through it. In the precious and glorious name of our eternal hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.